At Marcus by Goldman Sachs, we know the importance of a good recommendation. Like saving for a rainy day. Good recommendation. Wearing flip-flops on that day. Bad recommendation. That's why being awarded which recommended Provider for Savings 2021 is not only important for us, but for our customers to know their savings are in a good place. Open your high-interest, easy-access savings account today from just £1. Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Prospect Lives. Southern Voices on Modern Britain. I have always enjoyed drinking alcohol, something which is rather at odds with my job as an addiction psychiatrist. Farmers always talk about the weather, but why? I'm used to suffering agonies about the outcome of a match, but I've never before been nervous about whether my friends were going to hate me after. You can't help the family you're born into, but you can choose the family you make. Welcome to Prospect Lives, our brand new podcast. I'm Alan Rusbridger, editor of Prospect magazine. And when I arrived at Prospect, I wanted the magazine to be about people as well as ideas. Our new live section at the back of the magazine was the result of much brainstorming about the kinds of voices we wanted to include. And we've ended up with a collection of different experiences of modern Britain by a new family of Prospect writers filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in December. Anglican priest Alice Goodman was preparing for the Christmas nativity service and Gen Zedder Serena Smith had just quit her first job. Jason, who's an asylum seeker living in Doncaster, was concerned about the Nationality and Borders Bill, which was then passing through the Commons. Farmer Tom Martin was sniffing the soil on his Cambridgeshire farm every day. As we rejoin our lives family now, many have spent Christmas and the New Year pondering some big questions. Can drinking ever be good for us? asked the addiction psychiatrist Rebecca Lawrence. Would Boris Johnson be a better Prime Minister if he had a different haircut? wonders actress and writer Sheila Hancock. Do we take sport too seriously? asks Emma John, the author and sports journalist who is this month's Sporting Life and will alternate with former England cricket captain Mike Brearley for each issue. So let's begin with Emma as she sits on the try line of a tense game of rugby. I was not a sports fan from birth. My parents were both excellent athletes who met playing hockey at college. Bizarrely, they produced two daughters who had the physical dexterity and reflex responses of a pair of bungling pandas. I spent much of my childhood baffled by my mother's tempestuous support for various football, rugby and cricket teams and indifferent to her extraordinary depth of knowledge on everything from world snooker champions to Olympic decathletes. My own sporting conversion did not arrive until my mid-teens, when I finally asked her a fairly basic question about the test match she was watching on TV. Why are those two men dressed in white running up and down in a little box in the corner of the screen? 
That innocent inquiry triggered a chain reaction that led within a few short months to a lifelong obsession with cricket, coupled with an insatiable hunger for whatever else was available on terrestrial TV. Rugby, league and union, motor racing, tennis, athletics, darts, you name it. I'd even watch Ski Sunday if nothing else was on. My favourite rugby team, inherited from my mother, who was besotted with their great players of the 80s, was Bath. I lived in the city for 12 months at the turn of the millennium, working the till in the chocolate shop on the high street at a time when I felt very lost indeed. No friends, no career, no clue what I was supposed to be doing with myself. But as a sporting aficionado and a huge admirer of the players of Bath's glory days from Jeremy Guskett to Gareth Chilcott... I cherished my weekend visits to the wreck, the tiny city centre ground, nestled next to the River Avon and overlooked by the Abbey. For just a couple of hours on Saturday afternoons, surrounded by fellow enthusiasts, I experienced a rare thrill of belonging. The rest of my adult life, two decades of it now, have been spent in London, where I found my home, and the rare occasion that I get to watch my old team is usually at an away fixture. But recently, my best friend Ben and his husband John announced they were leaving London and moving to Bath. As they were abandoning me to live in what felt like the other side of the country, I told them that the least they could do to make up for it was to indulge me with a visit to one of my all-time favourite sporting venues. John had no history with the game of rugby. Ben, whose father and brothers all played and took it very seriously indeed, had emphatically rejected its macho culture as a child. I had to sell this outing hard. I told them that the wreck was one of the prettiest grounds in the country. Not strictly true, but its setting is beautiful. I emphasised the cider glow of camaraderie that distinguishes a West Country rugby crowd from, say, a spiky North London football derby. I also promised that we could take a thermos flask of hot chocolate spiked with rum to drink in the stands, which, to be honest, was probably what secured their attendance. By the day of the game, however, I knew I had overpromised. Ben and John's first and probably only experience of the wreck was shaping up to be a true test of spectator endurance. Bath had suffered their worst start to a season on record, losing every one of their matches, some by epic margins. And it wasn't just looking to be depressingly one-sided. The weather forecast also promised it would be thanklessly cold. Worse, I had only managed to get a seat right on the try line. Live rugby can be tough to follow, even for fans. You see so little of the ball, hidden beneath scrums, rucks and malls, that large portions of its progress up and downfield have to be interpreted from referee signals. Sitting in one corner of the ground, peering at an indistinguishable mound of bodies from a 100 yards away, does not usually make for engaging entertainment. I'm used to suffering agonies about the outcome of a match, but I've never before been nervous about whether my friends were going to hate me after. For John, a martyr to the cold, I brought a blanket to lay across our laps. For Ben, whom I expected to become bored quickly, I secreted a pair of binoculars in my bag in case he should complain that he couldn't see anything. When we bought our burgers from the food truck before the game, I immediately cursed myself. Now I'd have nothing to keep them distracted with during a perishing sub-zero half-time. And then the game kicked off and the home team, my team, nearly scored a try in the first minute. 
I momentarily forgot my concerns and turned to explain to them what was happening, only to realise that they could tell the game was off to a flyer. Perhaps whatever constitutes the communion of rugby saints, the blessed departed souls of Webb Ellis, Jonah Lomu et al., were pleased with my good deeds and this was their doing. For whatever reason, Bath put in their best performance of the season. They eventually lost, but held on until a hyper-dramatic final minute. 80 minutes never disappeared so fast. John, with only the most limited grasp of the rules, was fascinated. Even Ben admitted he'd had a good time. For me, it was a reminder that comes too rarely to those of us already obsessed with sport. The thing we love isn't a fundamental human necessity, or an outworking of tribalism, or, in the well-worn phrase, war minus the shooting. It's really just a fun way to spend a couple of hours. As revelations on the nature of sport struck Emma as she sipped a hot chocolate spiked with rum, Sheila Hancock reflected on the power of a good haircut. After our 2021 Christmas pudding, in an attempt to improve our opinion of another wretched year, my family took it in turns to declare one thing that we could look back on with pride. There was applause for a double first at university, successful hockey trials, defeating cancer, surviving COVID, avoiding bankruptcy, becoming a dame, but a slightly Baffled silence greeted 23-year-old Lola when she said, I am proud that I have embraced my natural hair colour. I thought it was a bit odd until I considered my own hair history. As a child, my hair was dead straight and a colour defined as mousy, a fair summary of my personality as it happens. From my first home perm at 15, my hair has been tortured into efforts to create a persona for myself. I have tried sexy blonde, wild redhead, dramatic brunette, backcombed bouffant and geometric Vidal Sassoon bob and found the most modern style, just got out of bed, very useful during lockdown. You name it, I've tried it. Now I just can't be bothered. So I've let my hair reveal the truth. I am old, white-haired woman. This is me. I'm delighted that Lola has acquired self-knowledge in 23 years rather than 88. I quite like being my white-head itself. Now I've accepted that it renders me invisible to waiters and bartenders. This doesn't happen to men. White hair gives them gravitas. I recently attended a wonderful talk organised by Prospect featuring Michael Hesseltine. The young people in the audience were very impressed by his elder statesman behaviour and dignified hair. They were too young to remember that wild, red-headed Tarzan swinging the venerable mace around in the House of Commons. Did his hair contribute to his failure to reach the top office? Hair is important to politicians. Boris Johnson knows that. I have twice caught Johnson surreptitiously ruffling up his blonde locks before bouncing into view. 
It shows that he has made a conscious decision that the electorate was bored with neatly coiffed vicar's daughters and PR executives, so he would replace them with a tousled, devil-may-care joker. And he was right. He was very funny and have I got news for you, so we decided that he was just the man to sort out the grave injustices in our country. His plans for a garden bridge over the Thames, a floating airport in the estuary and another bridge between Scotland and Northern Ireland proved that he had the imagination to fulfil all his promises about Brexit. So we gave him a thumping majority to get it done. In 1975, I appeared on Question Time with Margaret Thatcher. It was the year that she was appointed party leader. She arrived at the broadcast with a retinue of men who were drilling her about possible questions. Her hair was in a suburban, dingy-coloured tight set, probably decided by her male groomers. They had already employed a voice coach to lower her voice. When she took over the reins herself, she first lightened and fluffed up her hair. She worked hard on her image, summing it up in a speech about Russia. I stand before you tonight in my red star chiffon evening gown, my face softly made up and my fair hair gently waved, the Iron Lady of the Western World. She was a sort of fierce Marilyn Monroe. The picture of her in a tank with a billowing cream scarf and windswept hair was archetypal. When Liz Trust emulated the same pose wearing an army uniform, she just looked silly. I don't think the Queen bothers about her image. Her hats, outfits and hair have remained more or less the same for the whole of her life. In my old age, I am allowing myself to be apolitical, a plague on both their houses, so no lefty inclination obliges me to be a Republican. I have loved the Queen ever since 1940, when with the bombs falling, she and Princess Margaret Rose spoke to us children on the radio, telling us to be brave and we would win the war. Some 80 years later, this Christmas, my whole family, including my grandchildren, shared a furtive tear at this 95-year-old woman, now without her strength and stay, urging us to look ahead with confidence. She was wearing the same hairstyle. It has, apart from the colour, not changed a jot in all those years. It is a constant in our chaotic lives. Heaven forbid that anyone should give her a makeover or that she should decide Boris like to ruffle up those lacquered curls and waves. Would Johnson be a better prime minister if he combed his hair? I fear his crooked tie, grubby-looking shirt and ill-fitting trousers would still illustrate his unsuitability for the job as our nation's leader. Crooked, grubby and ill-fitted he would remain, even with tidy hair. I suspect he wears immaculate whites and a smart cap to play cricket at checkers. In public, he thinks we like his apparent lack of conformity. His judgment is yet again awry. When my highly skilled specialist wears an old-fashioned, immaculate white medical coat for appointments, 
he treats us patients with respect. When Johnson addressed a meeting of smartly dressed businessmen and women, looking, as my mother would have said, as if he'd been dragged through a hedge backwards, and having obviously not bothered to prepare a speech, it was alarming. After rambling incoherently about Peppa Pig, that endless pause when he lost his way in the speech and muttered, forgive me, forgive me, was chilling. He stood transfixed as though he was staring into the abyss of his own inadequacy. It was probably the most truthful moment of his premiership. The cheerful, relentlessly optimistic act doesn't work anymore. Despite my new non-partisan apolitical attitude, Keir Starmer's sober appearance, like that of the Queen, makes me feel safer. And come to think of it, in the shadow cabinet, Angela Rayner, Yvette Cooper and Lisa Nandy have all got great hair. Sheila's frustrations with the Prime Minister are shared by Jason Thomas Fornillier, who feels his community is under threat. It was a stunning day in August. I had travelled to Manchester with a group from a refugee charity I volunteer with. The city was buzzing with energy. I wore casuals that day, my Nike polo t-shirt and black denim shorts with sunglasses to keep it fashionable, as they say. We had lunch at Nando's, and I had couscous with chickpeas and hummus, along with an aubergine burger. I was sitting with Anna and Jonathan, coordinators from Refugee Asylum Seekers Voice Charity, as well as other members from our WhatsApp group. It was so wonderful to meet so many of them in person for the first time, and there was a real camaraderie in our conversation. We talked about our goals for the future, what kind of work we want to do if we get refugee status, what parts of England we would like to visit. It was just positivity and hope overflowing. This community is my new family. Our social get-togethers are a blessing. Truly, you can't help the family you're born into, but you can choose the family you make. The LGBTQIA plus charity, Time to Be Out, based in York, has been my anchor since I was relocated to the north of England. We have a monthly meetup where we have great conversations. Food is catered to everyone from meat lovers to vegans and pescatarians like me. Getting to share my worries with those who have experienced similar homophobic discrimination and violence, even though we are from different cultural backgrounds, centers me mentally and is comforting. It's very cathartic for me. At our last social event, I met a couple from Iran. They went through so much pain and suffering in their home country for loving one another that it's left them with emotional scars that are not easy to put aside. Since arriving in the UK, they've continued their relationship, which the Home Office is fully aware of, while processing them in new accommodations. The Home Office decided to split them up, knowing the emotional and mental anguish it will bring to them both. I can't help but question whether this would have happened to a heterosexual couple. 
It's situations like these that make attending social inclusion groups with members of the asylum community so important. We can provide support when such difficult circumstances arise. However, the Nationality and Borders Bill threatens everything we do within the asylum community. It demolishes the relationships that we have built with British communities. I arrived here in the hope of security and opportunity. I wanted to live in a safe environment and a free society where I would be protected by democratic laws from discrimination or persecution. I had hoped that Britain would be a place where my rights were protected as a human being. I decided to speak to other asylum seekers about the bill. I talked to one family of six who made a dangerous journey from Afghanistan to the UK. Their asylum claim has been pending for eight years. They are living in dilapidated housing provided by a private government contractor. They cannot work and their eldest child, who is now 20, cannot go to university as he is not eligible for student finance. The family feels stateless every day. They experience an endless sense of uncertainty, especially about their children, which keeps, keeps them up at night. How can they secure a future for them? For families like them, the bill which has been passed by the Commons and is being debated in the House of Lords will only make life more difficult. A family who arrives in the UK will have to first wait six months before having their asylum claim processed, while the Home Office tries to find another country to send them to. They want to outsource us. So far, no other countries have agreed to take on the UK's asylum seekers. If a family's asylum claim is accepted and they are granted refugee status, the bill proposes to only give them temporary protection, which has to be renewed every 30 months for 10 years. I know what it feels like, the fear, to have your place in this country, constantly dangling over your head, feeling like you have to prove yourself all over again every couple of years would be exhausting. And for people like me, so-called failed asylum seekers, in the appeals process, the bill threatens to take away some of our appeal rights. I could lose the opportunity to challenge previous decisions made on my asylum claim that may be questionable. In 2019, more than 50% of asylum decisions made by the Home Office were overturned on appeal to the tribunal. The new bill could undermine justice. The draconian rules set out in this bill are an insult. The language and the reality of the bill have made me feel so unwanted. For people seeking asylum here in the UK, the policies make us feel like we're all inanimate things. The government has to reduce us to full stop in a sentence. 
While Jason celebrates the restorative power of a social get-together, a big New Year's Eve bash leaves Jen Zedder, Serena, feeling lukewarm. It's early in the morning on New Year's Day 2022. I'm in a room full of people. Some I know and love, some I don't know too well, some I don't know at all. Jules Holland is on the TV, muted but with the subtitles on, while Maul Grab thuds through a speaker. I'm sipping Prosecco from a red paper cup, thinking about how much I missed parties and going out while we were in lockdown. As I lived in a tiny, rural town pre-university, the first few times I went out required catching a train to the nearest city, Worcester. My friends and I would religiously stick to the same routine each time. Totter to sin on New Street, stagger up to bushwhackers, better known as bushies or just bush, at 1am, then finally retire to McDonald's and conclude the night by eating hot fries out of a grease-stained brown paper bag. I enjoyed clubbing, even then, when Will Griggs on Fire was played at least three times a night and when the dress code demanded that all girls wear heels. But my love for going out really began once I started university. I'd heard that Leeds had good nightlife, but I didn't really understand how nightlife could be good. I soon found out. The first, most immediately noticeable improvement was that girls were allowed to wear trainers in clubs. My university friends and I still cringe when we look back at our Freshers' Week pictures. There's one particularly bad snap that captures me in an H&M miniskirt and suede ankle boots, pouting next to my new, now old, friend Beth, who is dressed in a grey bodycon dress and five-inch heels. When we arrived at the student union that night, we clocked that most people had opted for jeans and trainers. The next day, I stuffed my three pairs of heels into the back of my wardrobe, where they remained until I moved out of halls. But it wasn't just the trainers' policy that made Leeds's nightlife so great. There were the different venues and club nights, where I discovered my enduring love of disco, and the ritual of picking up a portion of cheesy chips and gravy from Krispies on the way home. I loved it all. The scramble to buy a second-hand event ticket through Facebook, dabbing on sparkly eyeshadow while sipping on a can of Red Stripe, pre-drinks to the tune of inoffensive Spotify playlists, then the taxi there, followed by shots at the bar, gossip in the smoking area, pep talks in the toilets. Even the next morning would somehow be a part of the experience, debriefing in front of the TV with ham and mushroom pizzas hot on our laps. My love of partying is inextricably bound up with the fact that going out was how I forged so many solid friendships. It was how we bonded. And yet, despite clearly remembering how I'd promised myself in the depths of lockdown that I'd never say no to a party again, all I could think while perched on my friend's sofa in the early hours of New Year's Day was... I want to go home. I shivered. The door was half open to reduce the risk of COVID, as I fantasised about slipping away, ordering an Uber, and getting into my nice, warm bed. I caught myself dreaming of ducking out and wondered, have I become boring? Having repeatedly insisted throughout lockdown that things wouldn't truly feel normal until I could party again, I was suddenly confronted with the possibility that I'd gone from being someone who would stay up two-stepping until six in the morning to someone who would choose a solid eight hours of sleep over anything. A guilty part of me likes the mundanity of my current routine. I like that my weekends are primarily for cooking indulgent meals and burning scented candles and binge-watching The Sopranos. Some people have dubbed the... Some people have dubbed the pandemic the Great Accelerator. So is it that I've simply prematurely aged out of going out? 
Sometimes I think to myself, curled up in bed watching Netflix on a Friday night, are my clubbing days over for good? But of course, they aren't. Although my friends are scattered across the country nowadays, and we go out once every three months as opposed to once every three days, it's still just as magical to be in a crowded bar, clutching their hands, singing terribly along to Don't You Want Me. Sure, some days I'll be sound asleep by 11pm, but other days I'll be in the kitchen at a house party, sinking extra strong vodka and cokes, itching to get back on the dance floor. While Serena re-evaluates her relationship with the dance floor, Rebecca Lawrence, a psychiatrist who is herself bipolar, asks whether drinking alcohol can ever be good for us. I have always enjoyed drinking alcohol, something which is rather at odds with my job as an addiction psychiatrist. When I first started this work, I gave up alcohol completely for several months, largely due to the horror of witnessing the devastation it can cause. I also wanted to prove to myself that I could. How could I ask others to stop drinking if I couldn't? I didn't feel any better or worse, and eventually I let myself drink again, but the easy pleasure of my youthful drinking was gone. I am now a unit counter, a drink controller, and I am very hard on myself if I fail to stick to my own rules. I watch other people with an eye of suspicion and envy those who either drink or don't drink with abandon. For me, and for many others, drinking and guilt walk hand in hand. But sometimes I wonder, if I ditched the guilt and self-monitoring, would I really drink any more? The truth is, I doubt it. Modern life is filled with so many instructions and apps telling us how we should live that it's quite hard to listen to our own minds and bodies which are often best at telling us when we've had enough. And this leads me to a further thought. Can drinking ever actually be good for you? I don't mean in terms of the oft-quoted health benefits of red wine, as I think most people know, that is largely wishful thinking. Instead, I mean more in terms of happiness and connection or fulfilment. Humans have been drinking alcohol for millennia, and have always sought substances that change their mental state in one way or another. Even our morning coffee does this. A substance like alcohol, which is so consistently sought after, must surely provide something positive. At its best, alcohol can be a source of social cohesion. It can help us to interact, make new friends and even find romantic partners. The pleasure of drinking, sensibly, with others should not be denied and neither should it be tainted by guilt. We must never forget the problems caused by alcohol, both to individuals and society, but neither should we lose sight of the joy it can bring. The anthropologist and evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar has researched these potential benefits. He suggests that they may relate to the triggering of the endorphin system but one in five adults in the UK don't drink at all, and there are of course many other ways to trigger our endorphins, such as exercise. We don't need to drink, but many of us do. I've spoken to many people with alcohol use disorders, both friends and patients, and one thing strikes me. For them it's never enough. Most of us quickly tire of drinking and usually turn down that last one 
but for some people this is almost impossible. It's as if their reward pathway has been misset, as if it never says stop and just carries on shouting for more. I often ask my patients, what do you enjoy about drinking? Many of them look at me, uncomprehending. After alcohol has ripped their lives apart, there is often no pleasure left. But for others, there is still some joy in drinking and understanding that can be vital to making changes. It must be hard to admit to enjoying something that you think you shouldn't, perhaps even more so when it's hurting you or the people you love. I've heard so many non-drinkers ask blankly about someone with alcohol problems, why can't they just stop? But this can be a harsh and unforgiving question. Personally, I consider myself enormously lucky that I can stop because, if I couldn't, I would not be able to continue drinking and would have to stop completely. But perhaps the truth is that I have never enjoyed it enough, that alcohol dependence may be a consequence of liking alcohol far too much, or of finding that it relieves pain far too well, at least at the start. Later, it causes its own pain. A cool glass of wine with a friend is the epitome of joy for me, but it's just as much about the friend and the end of the day and relaxing. I would never advise someone else to drink, but neither would I promote universal abstinence. The pandemic has made life harder for many of us, with people less able to see each other, and there's no doubt that some are drinking more to relieve boredom and depression, and perhaps to fill the gaps left caused by social isolation. Hopefully, 2022 will bring more happiness to all of us. For those of us who drink, we will enjoy it in moderation. Drink when your mood is good, drink with friends, and stop as soon as it no longer makes you happy. I think that works for me. While Rebecca pledges to ditch the guilt and self-monitoring, Anglican priest Alice Goodman suffers with a classic case of clergy burnout. January, when the many services of Christmas are done and in the register, and Ash Wednesday hasn't yet appeared over the horizon, is the classic time for a priest to escape from the parish. I'd been looking forward to my holiday for a year and a half. I'd turned off my email and handed all parish matters to the church wardens to deal with. There would be services in the benefits, but other people would lead them. Meanwhile, I looked forward to reading in bed, walking on the beach, making a fire in the fireplace, reading some more, and then eating Christmas leftovers. I'd knit. I'd nap. I would look at the sky and the fells and bask in the silence. On the way up the motorway, a blinking light on the dashboard indicated that the diesel particulate filter was not, as I had hoped, regenerating itself. And on the drive back from our first beach walk, the check engine light came on. All bad signs. That night I woke up at four. Fear and trembling came upon me. My teeth chattered and my bowels turned to water like the psalmist's. Unlike the psalmist, I went into the bathroom and took a sertraline and a couple of loperamide tablets and lay down again, listening to the world service and the quiet breathing of the dogs. The things I'd been holding together in the parish had all come loose. The griefs, my own and those of my neighbours. The worries, the responsibilities, 
the form filling, the money needed to repair the roof of the little church at Six Mile Bottom, and the money needed to pay the parish share. The people I'd not been able to visit and hadn't even managed to call. Things past and things to come. The state of the world, the state of it. Oh, and the check engine light, which had set off all this horror. If the engine failed, how was I going to get home? Whom could I call? Gradually, over the course of the holiday, I regained my equilibrium. Even now, my hands still shake, making the carrying of a cup of coffee and a plate of toast more of a task than it should be. But when I wake at four, the sounds of the sleeping house send me back to sleep. After New Year's, when everything reopened, the master mechanic at the garage in Barnoldswick regenerated the car's diesel particulate filter and changed the oil. It almost sounds like something from the Psalms, doesn't it? For he hath regenerated my diesel particulate filter, and my oil hath he changed. My soul is quieted, like a weaned child upon its mother's breast. The model and justification of most holidays taken by clergy is Jesus' custom of going to a deserted place to pray. He did it, you should too. From the earliest centuries, Christianity had its contemplative side. These stories are its foundation. Before that, though, there's the account of the flight of the prophet Elijah from the vengeance of Jezebel in the 19th chapter of the first book of Kings. This is the model of clergy burnout. An angel gives him a hot cake baked on a stone and lets him sleep. Then, when he wakes, he is offered another cake and sleeps again. Only after that does he go up to the mountain of God where the Lord speaks to him, not in the sound of gale or earthquake, but in sheer silence, the echoing silence where the wind and the earthquake have passed. In that silence, God tells Elijah that there will be a new king and also that there will be a new prophet because more people have been faithful than Elijah is willing to credit. That's a favorite story of mine, as is the one told by the reclusive 19th century Hasidic sage Menachem Mendel Morgenstern of Kotsk, better known as the Kotska Rebbe. It concerns the sacred goat whose horns reached up to the heavens. As he walked through the world, the goat heard a poor old man crying. Why do you weep? asked the goat. Because I have lost my snuff box. Cut a little bit from one of my horns, said the goat. Take what you need to make a new one. You can guess what happened next. There are more poor folk in the world who have lost their snuff boxes than you can count. The last five days of the holiday were idyllic. I listened to the sounds of the river, the sparrows in the hedge, the hum of a quiet house. The last five days of the holiday were idyllic. I listened to the sounds of the river in spate, 
the sparrows in the hedge, the hum of a quiet house. My thoughts moved together like a school of transparent hatchling fish. I'm not Jesus, not Elijah, not the Kotzka Rebbe. But if I were a sacred goat, my horns would be growing back. As Alice basks in the silence of the fells and the sky, Farmer Tom is troubled by the increasingly dramatic weather events that capsize his crops and his profits. While I love to break farming stereotypes, here's one that stands up. Farmers always talk about the weather. But why? To answer that, let me take you back to a recent fateful summer on our farm. I clearly recall an afternoon in July 2020, when with some trepidation I went to look at our fields of rapeseed. You may also know this merry crop covered in yellow flowers throughout April as oilseed rape or possibly canola. Rapeseed is a brassica, the same family as mustard, and I had nurtured these five foot tall plants from their tiny mustard sized seed through one of the wettest winters in living memory. They had staved off attacks from pigeons and flea beetles and survived the driest May on record. However, over the first weekend of July, forecasted high winds came and gusts of up to 40 miles per hour buffeted the plants. At any other time of year, this wouldn't be an issue as this crop, sown the previous August, can tolerate all manner of extreme weather. But as the plant naturally dies off in June and July, the pods containing the seeds that we hope to harvest become brittle and prone to breaking open, spilling open their valuable content. That summer, I watched helplessly as the seed I had toiled to produce for over 12 months fell to the ground, and the reasonable profit that the crop had been set to bring in turned instantly to loss. The crop was decimated, and I employ decimated in its proper historic sense of to reduce by one-tenth, as so many of the precious black seeds were now on the floor. Through the year, farmers invest between 600 and 1,000 pounds per hectare in growing a crop of rapeseed, which is then sold to produce environmentally friendly biofuels, cooking oils and industrial lubricant. With a sale price at the time of around 350 pounds per tonne, I had to harvest over two and a half tonnes per hectare just to break even. But little did I know that the ferocious wind was to be the least of my worries. Much worse was to follow. Within just a few days, another storm brought rain and popcorn-sized hailstones. It was an isolated storm that affected our neighbours to the north and south, but not to the east and west. I watched it from my house, powerless. My wife wondered aloud if the hail would dent her car, but with the damage in just one field, nearing £10,000, it would have been cheaper to pay for a new car. This 10-minute meteorological onslaught affected all our crops, it was a loss of income for the farm on a scale that I'd never seen before. And that summer, it was followed by Storms Ellen, Francis and Alex, which put the loss well into six figures. While birth and death, growth, gain and loss are all part of nature and farming, to lose the fruits of 12 months labour is devastating. I won't forget that summer. Just a few years into my farming journey, I wake up every day and in the pre-dawn promises of daylight, check the weather forecast with a sense of unease. As chairman of the East of England Farming Conference, I'm often asked about the impact of Brexit and, and the pandemic on UK farms. 
Both have undoubtedly brought seismic shifts to the business landscape. But the weather remains my biggest concern. You won't meet many climate change denying farmers. Mother Nature is raising her game and we are on the front line. Spring 2020 was the sunniest since records began and the nation's refrain during that COVID-19 lockdown was, at least it's not raining. That is true, of course, it wasn't. It wasn't raining at all. Local weather stations recorded zero millimetres of rain during much of that spring and the crops stalled, wilted and in many cases died. Farmers were reclassified from unskilled labour to key workers, meaning that we had the pleasure of continuing to work during that period. I must say we were immensely grateful to escape martial confinement, but the relentless drought meant that once again soil moisture was evaporating, and with it our profits. In a recent survey, three in four farmers said extreme weather events had cost their businesses more than £50,000, and our farm would certainly be among that number. It was reported last year that the weather, combined with the impacts of COVID and Brexit, slashed farm incomes by 20%. The previous few years have seen records for temperatures and drought. I've realised that the impacts here on the farm cut beyond the pocket. It's a flesh wound of labour squandered and efforts rendered fruitless. This is why the stereotype of farmers obsessing over the weather is true and the roots of our societal small talk about whether or not to carry a furled umbrella are deeply embedded in our nation's ties to the land. Thank you so much for tuning into our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in March and tune into our regular podcast every Wednesday. And if you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful Lives columnists, Escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstand now, or even take out a subscription. Or go to the website, where you can read writing from Archbishop Justin Welby, Ruth Davidson, David Bediel, and many more. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time. At Marcus by Goldman Sachs, we know the importance of a good recommendation. Like saving for a rainy day. Good recommendation. Wearing flip-flops on that day. Bad recommendation. That's why being awarded which recommended Provider for Savings 2021 is not only important for us, but for our customers to know their savings are in a good place. Open your high-interest, easy-access savings account today from just £1. Marcus by Goldman Sachs.